This is Hypercritical. It is a weekly talk show ruminating on exactly what is wrong in the world of Apple and related technologies and businesses. Nothing is so perfect. Cannot be complained about. By John Syracuse, who co-hosts this show with me. I'm Dan Benjamin. Today is November 11, 2011. And this is episode number 42. We would like to thank our sponsors, reinvigorate.net and Raven. Io. And in fact, uh, Reinvigorator is also sponsoring all of our bandwidth this month. Reinvigorate.net, real-time web stats, and heat maps. I'll tell you more about them as the show goes on. Hi, John Syracuse. Hi, Dan Benjamin. How are you feeling? I'm all right. You sound good. Yeah. Been Turn working, off that automatic been... gain control. That's what did it. Oh, you sound so good. You've been working out? No, no, definitely not. Okay. All right. Uh, do you know what today's show is about, Dan? Microsoft. No. Uh, killing the dashboard so it doesn't occupy too many resources on your MacBook Air. Oh, no, no, no. We're going to talk about the uh, Steve Jobs oh, file. Yeah, I, I studiously avoided file. listening to any of your other shows that discussed it. I didn't listen to Andy Anako's show when he discussed it. Okay. Uh, yesterday, or whatever Gruber show was. Once Check. I started talking about the bio, I turned that off. Uh-huh. I don't think Marco talked about it at all, but not really avoiding all other discussions because I'm assuming we all have very similar things to say and it's harder to say them and sound fresh. If you've heard a bunch of other people say the same things, but you don't have that luxury, unfortunately. Uh, I, I like, I like is, hearing finish the book. Uh, I finished. I'm so close to finishing it. I'm within pages, pages of being done. I would, you know, so don't I'm, ruin I'm probably the last, the last show where we're going to talk about it. I figured now, surely you will have finished it. I've read it enough that I can. Well, you didn't listen to the earlier show, so you don't know. But I'm, uh, I, but I don't have it on my desk right now, so I'm not going to be reading passages from it. So I will rely on you to read the passages. Oh, great. Well, yeah, I'm sure you have a uh, someone who can get you your copy of the book. I don't want to inconvenience anybody. Do you want me to go away? All right. You know what? You talk for that, a second, and that's I'll going to be on your. You think that's going to be on your gravestone? I don't want to inconvenience anybody. All right, I'm getting the book. So far away. All right, this is what they call dead air, John. Let's talk about something. You just throw down a marker. No, we don't edit for content. I've got the book on my desk. All right, ready. But before we do the book, we will do some follow up, just a little bit. F you. Huh? Yeah. So Chris Moore writes in to clarify the pronunciation of the of Sony's handheld gaming platform, the PSP. It's spelled V-I-T-A. And every time apparently I've talked about it in the past two or three shows, I've waffled on how to say it because I don't know. Well, here he is someone who lives in Japan uh, and he tells me that the Japanese name for this thing uses phonetic lettering and the pronunciation is Vita. Live in la Vita loca. Yeah kind of sounds like viva that he says that uh japanese doesn't specify what syllable the emphasis is on uh but it seems like it should be vita so there you go store that in your uh your notes for uh, any future shows where I, I don't think any of your other hosts know that the, the psp vita exists but uh if it ever does come up now you will know the correct pronunciation so what is it something this is kind of semi related but what is this new um Nintendo 3... What is this thing? The 3DS? That's not Three, new. What is this thing? Well, it finally yeah. got Mario, so it's finally on my radar. <laughs> Jeez, that's been, how long has the 3DS been out, Chatroom? A year? 
Who cares? It didn't have Mario, so it doesn't count. That's like saying, uh, oh, we got this new car, but there's no gas for it. So so have fun driving. Do you know what the the Nintendo DS is? Yes. So this is a, in the same line of products, uh, but it's not, uh, they added 3D to it. There's more to it than that. They also changed all the chips inside it, and it's more powerful and so on and so forth. But the big headline feature is that it has 3D capability, and it's that glasses-free 3D where it sends like the left eye image sort of shooting off to the left and the right eye image shooting off to the right oh, so you okay. have to align your your head to the center of, of the display to see the 3D effect but you don't need glasses. You don't need any shutter glasses or anything like that. Do you get headaches Char- from this thing? I don't own one. I'm not big on handheld games. Some people say they do get headaches from it but the best thing about the 3DS is that it has a little slider next to the screen that you can slide up or down and sliding it all the way down just makes it 2D. So if you slide this thing all the way down, is there a benefit to having this uh, over the just the regular one? Yeah, it's more powerful, bigger screen, the games are better looking. Uh, the chat room says March 27th, 2011 was the U.S. release of the 3DS. Okay. It's been having a little bit of trouble in the market because of competition from iOS games and stuff like that, and they've had to reduce the price already, and it's a source of much consternation in the world of Nintendo. But uh, some good software is coming out for it now. As you noted, the new Mario game everybody loves. Uh, they they did a port of uh, Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time to the 3DS, where they didn't just port it from the Nintendo 64, they also improved all the graphics and added 3D, of course. Uh, so I, I've never been into the handheld gaming platforms at all, because I'd rather play on a big screen, and I don't want to hold a little thing, but kids obviously love it. Do you have one of these, or you're saying by explanation of what you just said that you do not have one? I do not have one. I showed it to my son when it was in, in the store. They have a little store displays where you can, you know sit there in front of it and do the little slider and he played it for a couple seconds but it wasn't so blown away that he said oh my god i have to have one of those because you know he gets to play on the big tv screen so i'm not sure how into the uh little portable things he is Ooh, the the uh the leaf blowers are back yeah they'll be gone in a minute all right uh, I think, unless i messed up my notes this next follow-up is from the same person chris moore or somebody with the same name uh, we talked about Windows 8 contracts a couple shows ago, mm-hmm. and I was mentioning how uh, it was si- similar to uh, Apple's ancient technology that nobody remembers called Publish and Subscribe, which is similar to OLE and Com and blah, blah, blah. Uh, but I mentioned that the difference in naming where Publish and Subscribe is kind of a liberal arts type of name about, you know, media publishing and, uh, and magazines for subscriptions or whatever, and contracts is like a legal thing. So it was interesting which, uh, that which company came up with which term. Well, Chris points out that Another place where our contracts could have come from is designed by contract. Are you familiar with that uh, concept in programming? Yes, but I think it would be ideal if you could detail and explain it for the listeners. I don't know. Well, the only thing I know about it is what I read in an OO book years and years ago. But it's basically you, you, it's a way of formalizing uh, the relationship between entities in a program where you say, when I call this function, as I have a contract with this function, my contract is before I call this function, X, Y, and Z will be true. And after I call this function, function P, Q, and X will be true. I'm probably mangling it, but there are some... It prescribes that software designers should define formal, precise, and verifiable interface specifications for software components or components, as you say, which extend the ordinary definition of abstract data types with preconditions, postconditions, and invariants... These specifications are referred to as contracts in accordance with a conceptual metaphor with the conditions and obligations of business contracts. Yeah, and some some languages have sort of built-in support for this concept or better support for this concept. Uh, the book I read about it in was, of course, the uh, a Perl book about uh, 
object-oriented design. And one of the types of OO that you can do with Perl is uh, design by contract. And they showed an implementation of it and why you might want to do it. So it's possible that's that's where they came. I hadn't thought of that because I hadn't thought about design by contract in many years. Uh, and finally, one more on Apple and television stuff. We did a show, was it last week? I don't know, re recently where I rambled on for a long time about Apple's prospects for TV, television sets, uh, uh, talking about what what Apple needed to make a go of it in this game. Uh, mostly it came down to, are they going to have enough content to get people over to their product? Are they going to have a critical mass of content? Could they ever have enough content to persuade more or less everybody that this is an equivalent or better service than their existing cable subscription? And, uh, you know, the technologies and the input method, how are we going to control this thing? Is it just some sort of remote? What about Siri? So that, that's what we discussed in the show. And one thing I had in my notes that I just didn't get to and someone brought up, this is Russ Newcomer, assuming I'm pronouncing his name correctly. He didn't give a pronunciation, I don't think. Uh, the thing he brought up is, so let's say in my fantasy scenario, Apple gets in, they get all the content, like, you know, everything, Showtime, HBO, all the sports, just, you know, everything anybody needs. That's a non-issue. And they figure out the interface thing. So it's like, wow, you know, if you're currently have cable, you should get this Apple thing because it's great. I can watch all my shows. It's a, it's, it's a, a deal financially. Uh, and I love this new interface. They still face the problem of you can't just take everybody who currently watches cable television and switch them to this new Apple thing. Because we all assume that this new Apple thing will be sending you television programming over the internet. Like, no, we don't even discuss that. On all the shows we talk about Apple TV, no one is discussing, well, how will these programs get to the houses? We just assume it's the internet, right? Well, cable television has a huge advantage over television stream from the internet in that cable television is broadcast. They broadcast the channels, you tune into the channels that you want. It's much more efficient than streaming an individual thing to each person's house. And most sort of broadband internet networks are massively oversubscribed. They assume that everybody who subscribes to Comcast Cable or whatever is not pulling the maximum bandwidth that they're allowed according to their contract at the same time. There's just not enough bandwidth for that. So Apple's success in this area, assuming they were just fabulously successful and had this amazing thing that everybody wanted, like an iPad-like success where it just sells, you know, every, people are dropping their cable subscription left and right and signing up for this thing. <laughs> Very quickly, I think they would run into the, the issue that, that we just don't have the right infrastructure for this to work. I mean, CDNs and stuff like that can really help in terms of not sending the bits all the way across the country and everything. Uh, but for things like live streaming, for example, some sort of broadcast thing seems like it has to be necessary or at least some sort of agreement with ISPs or the, there's a technical problem lurking out there in the massive success scenario. Now, maybe this is not a problem because it's not like they're going to overnight get all these subscribers and then, you know, but... It, this is another example of where it seems like they have to to cooperate with the people they're supposedly competing with to ever achieve the massive success that I think they would want to have. You know, so if they'd have to work with the ISPs, work with Verizon and Comcast, you know, to say let's let's get in this together. I'll give you a cut of the money, but we got to figure out some way to get all this content at these people's houses because, you know, we we the nerds watch Netflix and stuff like that, but most people are watching broadcast television, not over the air broadcast, but broadcast on cable and FiOS and stuff. So I thought that was a good point that I forgot to get to in that discussion. All right, jobs bio. This is the book 
came out a number of uh, weeks ago. Steve Jobs is the title by Walter Isaacson. This is a uh, freshly freshly made. Now, did you did you read this on a Kindle, or did you read this? Uh, did you read this instead uh, on a you know hardcover book? Like we it? have an actual Kindle device in the house, or the, the Kindle second gen. And I've tried to use it a few times, but I'm an, a very long time ebook reader from the days way before e ink was available before the Kindle from like 2002. I've only been reading ebooks. And I'm very used to reading on like a little, originally on a Palm device, but on a little ha- handheld uh, LCD screen. I usually don't get access to the iPad because my wife is using it. Uh, but she does let me use her Kindle because she doesn't use it that much, and I just can't get into it. So I read at the same place I read almost everything these days, which is on an iPod Touch. Um, and where I bought it, I did buy it through the Kindle bookstore. So but you read you read this whole book on an iPod Touch. I read, uh, this is the thing I tell people who couldn't believe that you, you read electronic books in 2002 or 2001 or whatever, telling people that you read books electronically made you seem crazy. Uh, and the thing I would always tell them is that I read Lord of the Rings on a 160 by 160 pixel screen. The entire trilogy, including uh, plus The Hobbit. Hobbit plus Lord of the Rings on a 160 by 160 screen. Are and I read that series of books twice. Why so, would, can you think about how big 160 by 160 pixels is? Why would you is? do that? that? Like a retina display icon on, on Springboard is probably bigger than that. <laughs> you must not wear glasses. I, d- I do wear glasses. I'm, I'm nearsighted. But the thing is, I mean, obviously that was not ideal, but the advantages of having all those books in that little device were, uh, I, I remember dreaming about, boy, if, you know, if this screen on my palm thing could get a little bit bigger than this 160 by 160 square, maybe double the res and become like, uh, you know, a portrait display, display proportion, man, I'd be able to see so much text. And the iPod touch is basically that amazing device, you know, even just the first gen iPod touch. Wow. Look at all these words. And of course the iPad is even bigger. Uh, uh, Kieran Healy and Chatroom Massive. I, I worked for an early ebook app. Yes, I worked for what was originally Peanut Press that became Palm Digital Media when Palm bought them and then went through several different name changes and ownership changes and sad things happened in the end. But we were at one time the world's biggest ebook store, literally. We were just not very big. Uh, so, so yeah, I read the book, uh, the Kindle version, pretty much entirely on my iPod Touch as usual. And you, you have the paper version I saw in that little picture when I, you were recording with John, right? I do. I have a uh, the hardcover version of the book, uh, reading it as it was uh, intended to be read. I don't know about that. I don't know about that either. But I do have the, the print copy. Because I, uh, I like that. I like that I have it. People are upset with me because uh, apparently I, uh, I deface books when I read them. But that is the, the price I must pay. To be. Yeah, electronic book saved me from the fate of all the people in the chat room because I, I was one of those people who uh, did not break the bindings on my soft cover books. Forget about dog ears or, or notes in the margins or anything like that. I, right. I my books were so pristine that you could. I, first of all, when I would when I bought physical books, I would hunt through the bookstore to pick out the least damaged one because if you look at like you know, say you're going to buy the latest Stephen King book and they have eight thousand copies in the shelf, some of them are already screwed up. Corners are messed up. They have a big crease, a manufacturing defect. Someone broke the, the, the spine already of the soft cover, you know. So I will pick the very best one and then read it without causing any damage to the book at all so that it looks the same when I'm done with it as it did when I first bought it. And that's how I, that's how I used to be, too. Yeah. So I went through a long phase of that, and I have a pretty big collection of very, very 
good condition books. Uh, but then electronic books saved me. So I don't have to worry about that anymore, really. Yeah, amen. Well, All hey, right. before we get too into this, let's let's do our first uh, sponsor. All right. It's raven.io. Have you heard about this? Are you using the new browser? That's so raven. No, I'm not, <laughs> using, I'm not using the raven. The, I have heard about the raven browser, but I've forgotten what it is, so you remind me. <laughs> it's a new browser, John. It allows you to install your favorite web apps into it. Okay, so it has this really cool feature called the Smart Bar, which allows you to effortlessly switch between web pages, web apps, whatever it is. So you would add in there Ars Technica, the Fat Bits. Uh, you'd add 5x5, five five, you'd do Instapaper, you'd put a SIM code, Daring Fireball, whatever it is. And of course, you could put Basecamp in there too. You could put all your favorite sites in there. And then with a single click, you will be able to switch between them in a very, very cool, intuitive way. And it has a built-in web app shop. Listen, this is just, it's insanely great. You just, everybody should go and try this thing. It's free. It's not like I'm asking you to spend money. I'm asking you to go try out this really cool browser. It's a really cool new approach that I, I have not seen before uh, that, that really, really works nicely. Of course, it's for Mac OS X. Of course, it's awesome and it's free. Uh, Raven.io. And of course, you can follow these guys. They're Raven Browser on Twitter. Go check it out. Free. I'm not, you know, free. Go try uh, it. I, I tried that. It's got explicit support for the, for the Google apps too, doesn't it? Sure like does. special support for yep. Gmail and Very and special. Calendar. Very special. So you, are you now unable to say the word bar without saying it like that? I think so. <laughs> <laughs> You've done that to yourself. I've done, I've ruined myself again. It's all right. Builds character. So right here, we've got this book. This is a long, this is a long book. Yeah, that's the other beautiful thing about ebooks is that you don't really know how long things are. It's just a series of Kindle dots or whatever. So here, here's my, here's my intro to the book. What I'm going to try to do is uh, I tried to write up like a summary so I don't ramble on for too long. And then I'm going to go into the individual instances and start quoting from the book and getting cranky and and uh, picky and stuff like that. Okay. But I'll try to do the overview first. So, Now, do, are you going to be able to reference a specific page or are you going to have to oh, say... Oh, no, no, forget it. I have no idea what these pages are. Uh, uh, but it's in the magical world of electronics. You can just search for it. And if you have a paper version, just scan every page with your eyes until you find the... That's why you should buy electronic books. Mm-hmm. All right. So there's a... Uh, a documentary that aired on PBS many, many years ago called Triumph of the Nerds. It's created by uh, Robert Gringley, who is a, now is a blogger and has written for uh, various uh, tech publications over the years. And it was one of the first attempts to collect together sort of all the players in the tech industry to talk about the tech industry. Uh, I wish I knew what year it was. I should have had this prepared. What year was Triumph of the Nerds? 1996, 95, something like that. Uh, 95, I think. Um. And in it, of course, Steve Jobs was interviewed. At this time, he was at, at Next, not yet back at Apple. But they were talking with him about, you know, the things that happened at Apple in the early years or whatever. And one of the things that happened that they were discussing was uh, John Scully was brought in uh, as the CEO of Apple. This was back when Steve Jobs was a young kid, and they didn't think he was equipped to run the company. It had had a series of CEOs before John Scully was brought in, and the Apple board wanted to find a new CEO. And Jobs sort of pitched Scully on the idea, the famous phrase of like, do you want to sell sugar water for the rest of your life or do you want to come and change the world? John Scully was uh, at that time, a uh, was he CEO? He was of some uh, uppity up at Pepsi company. Uh, so that was the sugar water comment, right? So basically he, he wooed Scully to come 
and run Apple for them. And eventually, it came to pass that there was a uh, conflict in, in the within the uh, upper echelon of the executives at Apple, and it was sort of Scully versus Jobs. And Scully won the the Apple board of directors back Scully, and Jobs was booted out of the company more or less by taking away all his responsibilities, and he just left. Right. And so during the triumph of the nerds thing, the interviewer asked, uh what what Jobs in 1996 thought of that? He had been out of Apple for many years. He had been working on Next, but it hadn't really been a smashing success. And here's what Jobs had to say about John Scully. And this is a great interview, by the way. You should, if you've never seen Triumphs of the Nerds, you should go find it, download it, watch it. It's great. Jobs said, what can I say? I hired the wrong guy. Mm. All right. In reference to Scully. So reading the Walter Isaacson, Steve Jobs bio... If I had to summarize my take on the book, I would say, what can I say? He picked the wrong guy to write his bio. Because Walter Isaacson, for what his, whatever his strengths might be, was absolutely the wrong guy to write the official biography of Steve Jobs. Why? And, well, before I get to that, like, so, what the thing, I can't emphasize this enough, the thing that is special about this book because many many books have been written about steve jobs and apple is that this is the one book with the one guy who had official authorized access to steve jobs everybody else it was like well if you can ever get steve to talk to you or find what he said to magazines years ago but you couldn't talk to him you couldn't talk to his family he would tell his friends not to like it's notoriously difficult to pin down steve jobs he doesn't like doing interviews he doesn't like talking about his personal life at all so this is the one time that he says, come on, I, I want you to do a book of movie. You can ask me anything. And then in the intro to the book, he said that he, Steve Jobs didn't hold anything back. He didn't even want to see what, what was being written in the book. You can write anything you want. You have complete access to, access to me, my family, everybody. He didn't tell his friends, oh, this guy's going around, around and writing a book about me, but don't tell him anything. It was just complete access. And one guy got this. That's why it's so important to pick the right guy. If Walter Isaacson had just, just written a Steve Jobs bio and not been the official loan guy who gets authorized access then you know whatever no big deal but now the jobs is gone no one else is going to ever going to have this direct access he was the guy and he is the wrong guy um and the reason i say he's the wrong guy is that walter isaacson does not know this industry that that you know the industry that steve jobs grew up in and and defined that's that's strike one but strikes two and three is that he doesn't know it and he didn't bother to learn about it that's the most egregious sin. If you like, he, it's like he didn't feel the responsibility of, you know, I'm the one guy with the authorized Steve Jobs biography. I know nothing about this industry at all. But boy, I'd better buckle down and learn. Like, you know, you would do if, if it was like a young, hungry kid who just came out of like a liberal arts degree and he was a writer but knew nothing about technology, and he, but understood who Steve Jobs was and why it was important, why he was important. It's like, boy, I, be- I better learn this stuff. I better go to the library. I better read everything I can about this industry. I better learn everything there is to know about this industry so I can come into this project understanding stuff. All right, now, why is it bad not to learn about this stuff? One, one of the things that uh, I think it was Jean-Louis Gasset said in his blog is that some people would say, well, this is exactly who you want to write a bio about, Chief Joe. We don't want some nerdy guy who knows all about technology. You want an outsider to write it so he can sort of get a good perspective and stuff. And uh, John-Louis Gasset came down at the same time, at the same place as I did. It's like, no, actually, you do need someone who understands this industry. Because if you don't understand the industry, how can you know what's important, right? How can you know what's important in the life of this person? 
And what Walter Isaacson came in with is sort of a, a generalist layperson's knowledge of computers, right? And what he ends up focusing on in the bio are sort of human interest, general interest stuff. Family, friends, relationship, religion, money, gossip, like things, things that are just sort of common to the human experience. And he should write about those. But it's impossible to have any real insight to a life like Steve Jobs if you just look at the parts that are common to all lives, right? You know, because he wrote bios about Benjamin Franklin and Albert Einstein. But if you can write them all from the perspective of those topics that are common to everybody, you're missing out about what it is that's so special. And, it's, and that's especially, I mean, Walt, uh, with Albert Einstein, fine, he's dead. It's not, no one's interfering with him. You could, you could do a bio, a bio like, here's Albert Einstein, written from a layperson's perspective. I, don't want to, I won't really talk about the physics because I don't understand them. And arguably, physics is a lot harder to understand than the tech industry. But I'll just tell you about his life and his work and sort of, you know, a general's perspective. But that is the wrong approach to take to Steve Jobs. Um, and I think the, the worst sin is that the most exhilarating and interesting things about Jobs' life center on tech industry topics. Uh, the things, things that aren't exciting to you if you don't understand why they're interesting or important. You, you can't adequately capture those aspects of his life if you don't, if you don't understand the technology industry. So, you know, and, and, and Isaacson doesn't. I feel that he doesn't capture the exhilaration of the, what we in the industry know to be the important moments of his life. They're, they're given equal weight to the significantly less important aspects of his career and life. Just because both of them have an equal amount of, you know, uh, per, interpersonal drama or business repercussions. Because everyone understands dollars and cents. Everyone understands, you know, love and, and family relationships. And those things are important. But if that's the only criteria for measuring the the interest and importance of events in someone's life, you will mess it up, especially when that person is Steve Jobs. Now, these things that you're saying, I can agree with, but I agree with them from the standpoint uh, that I'm I'm the same as you and that I'm a relatively geeky person. But don't you think that this book was targeted? And I this is this is the same thing that I know you have not intentionally not listened to the other shows, but this was my response before, which is to say, don't you feel that based on the audience of this book, based on the, the, the intended audience of this book, based on the people who are intended to be reading this book, it, yes, it includes people like us, but it is not necessarily people like us. On the contrary, it is everybody except us who are probably going to be uh, wanting to learn about this. There is, I mean, did, was there that much in this book that you didn't know? I'm sure there were details and stories and things you hadn't heard about. But was there that much that you didn't really know about uh, in, in this book that came as a surprise or was like, oh my gosh, I had no idea? Or is this something that's sort of wrapping up things you already knew about, proving that you're really probably not the correct intended audience for this book? His responsibility to the people who don't know this industry as well as we do is to teach them about it. That's what a book is about. If you read a, a book about the history of like the American Revolution, someone who doesn't know about the history of the American Revolution is supposed to read the book and be taught why was this important? What are the important parts of the revolution? You know, by the end of it, that person should have some knowledge of the American Revolution and, you know, which parts uh, were, were significant. You ha I'm not saying you have to get super nerdy, but you have to he said it's okay that he's a layperson, but say he was a layperson who did his homework and learned about the industry and learned about the technology so that he could adequately tell the story of Jobs' life. And he would explain that 
to the lay people to say, here's what you need to understand about jobs. You know, they're this particular thing. This is why this, this particular change was important, or this is why this decision or this technology or anything was important in the context. You know, you have to teach the people about the book. You don't, you don't write it for nerds as if they're, you're assuming they have this baseline knowledge and you don't have to explain stuff. You do have to explain things. I'm not, it's not like I'm complaining that he explained stuff that I already knew or background that I already knew. In fact, I think he should have done more of that. He, his job is to, and, and, and again, this is so, so, much, so much more important because he's the one official guy who got the take. And if you want to write the sort of boring uh, human interest uh, people magazine bio of his life, fine. But if you're the guy who's got official access, you, your job should be to write the best bio that you can pop. That Those are my expectations. This, is, this has got to be the best bio of Steve Jobs uh, or a book about this of uh, any topic. Because he's the one guy who, who gets access. And I, I think that being, it's not, it's not a question of being targeted towards people like us. It, 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 you know, it's a question of doing justice to the subject matter. You, you can't, like, the author didn't understand what was important, and neither did the people who read this. We understand what was important because we're there and we're the nerds, mm-hmm. right? That's, that's not a successful book. You should be explaining to the people who don't know why all this stuff is important. Uh, so I'm going to do a, a... So the first part of the book you were asking about is like, did you, did you see anything you didn't uh, know before? Right. Uh, the, I, unlike almost everybody who reads this book, of course, I had read many, 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 many books about Apple, Steve Jobs, uh, the early years of the personal computer industry. I've seen things in television. I read websites, you know, massive amount of background, right? And the beginning of the book, obviously... Uh, or maybe not obviously, but didn't have much new information. Everything you saw in the first part of the book were things that I had read. When did elsewhere. this change? What chapter? If uh, did you even see chapters on your Kindle? But do you, do you know where yeah, about uh, what percentage see chapters on the Kindle? Yeah. As, so, well, let me let me first finish complaining about the first part of the book, and I'll tell you where the turning point was. Okay. Uh, so, in these sections, like, not only have I read these things before, I know exactly what sources he was pulling them from. Right? I mean, you can say like, "Oh, that one's pulled from folklore.org," or "That was from uh, Mike Evangelist's uh, blog when he wrote about." Because I remember reading that blog post four years ago. Or this was from a uh, second coming of Steve Jobs. This is from you know uh, uh, East of Eden. You know, I, the, the number of books I've read on this topic is unbelievable, and he does have a massive bibliography in the back. Uh, that's kind of expected because. It's harder to go back and interview people from the 70s. Like, memories fade. People might be dead. You know, it's hard to get a more definitive take on something that happened a long time ago. I will add, though, that the very best history and biography offers do just that. They go, they you know, say they're writing a book about something from the 50s or whatever. If there's anybody still alive, like, they do the research. They end up writing a book in 2000 and whatever about the 50s that has more detail in life than the books that were written in the 50s. Uh, but I, I admit that is kind of a high bar. But the thing that killed me about all the stuff I'm reading is that, oh, yeah, I see where I remember where he pulled that from. And he badly summarized it. He didn't pick up on what was important about the story. He just related sort of the broad strokes of the story, maybe in a way that is subtly misleading, uh, but in a way that adds no new insight. It reminded me of like when a, when a, a, a school, uh, a grade school kid does a book report. The book report on some Hemingway book is not going to be as good as the Hemingway book itself, obviously, because it has to be summarized. But I, I would say don't read the first half of this book. Just read all the source material if you want to actually know about the stuff, because he, <laughs> he takes the source material and lessens it and makes it makes it worth less than it is in, in the original context. And not just through leaving details out, but through what he decides to focus on, which is 
not what's important or interesting about those stories. So I didn't didn't like the first part of the book, but I knew I kept reading because I knew there had to be a turning point coming because all of the books that I have read personally on topic of Apple and Steve Jobs stop around the time of the iMac. And usually like around the time of, of Steve Jobs' return. Because that's kind of when he seriously shut off the valve on talking to the press, right? When he returned to Apple, the secrecy door came down hard. Getting interviews with him was not easy unless he was promoting a product. He would be very sort of careful in those interviews and just talk on talking points. And, you know, that's kind of where the history went off. And I figured, all right, at the very least, once we get to around the time of the iMac, I'm going to see some new information because all of the books and all the articles and everything that I've read it doesn't give a lot of detail about that. We don't, you know, I wanted to learn what's going on inside Apple that I didn't know about. And so true to form around the time of the iMac and around the time of the return to, uh, to Apple, there was no, there was new information and this new information was just as sort of glossed over and not, not filled with enough detail as the previous information. But the only difference was I didn't have a better incarnation of this information with which to compare it. So something is better than nothing. Right? New, new information has come to light. Yeah, so where was the turning nothing. point? Where I was the turning it point? And it would be infuriating to me, but yeah. Where was the turning point? What chapter? Oh, I don't remember the chapter. Number, you just right? said you would tell me and now you don't. Uh, I told you the turning point is, is around the time of the iMac. Uh, the chronology is a little bit weird because as the book, as the book goes on, it kind of jumps around chronologically into like it changes from strictly chronological to subject matter. Right. Like, like, like chapter 27 is the chapter on the iMac. But prior to that, they go into like talking about design principles. They talk about yeah. think different. They talk about uh, like what was going on at Pixar. And I've, I mean, did you were those things that you knew about? Did you already know about the Pixar story in, in yeah, detail? Yeah, the Pixar did story you, was not. There's nothing new there. Because nothing every, new. For everything you. they had in Pixar again, I had seen more detailed, better accounts of with better interviews and better sourcing and more insight elsewhere. But yeah, but they he wanted to put Pixar like in one chapter, right? And the same thing, like he had dedicated cancer chapters. But of course, the cancer chapters overlap with the chapter about the iMac, which overlaps with the chapter about you know messing with the chronology is fine. You can pull that off. But that's not my complaint. So that's, but that is why it's hard to pin down like at what chapter should you start reading? Uh, and if anyone wants a suggestion for what I think is the best book about early Apple, it's not about Steve Jobs strictly, but about early Apple it's infinite loop by Michael Malone. That is, uh, it's perhaps you would get a better impression by reading all the 900 books that I've read on the topic. But if you just have to read one about early Apple or read infinite loop, it's very comprehensive by an excellent author who took the time to learn about this stuff. It is in the show notes. All right. Actually, so, you know what? Uh, this is, um, can you buy, is this book still in print? Infinite Loop? I don't know. It's sitting on my shelf. It was back when I still bought paper. It says, it says uh, buy used. Fulfilled by Amazon, but buy used. It's worth, it's worth getting used. If you want, you know, or else just read every single book on the topic. I mean, can you find East of Eden still? The Second Coming of Steve Jobs is another printing. Apple Confidential has a more recent printing, I think. I'm just looking over my bookshelf to read off these titles that I see poking out at me. Apple Confidential. Yeah, insanely great. Uh, Do you want Apple Confidential? Apple Con- Apple Confidential 2.0. That if yeah, no, I was saying some some books have gotten revs. Like the Second Coming of Steve Jobs got revisions. Apple Confidential got got a, a revision because they add more new info and stuff. Infinite Loop, I don't think did, but Infinite Loop is 
a much better written, much more competent, much more interesting book about the things in the early chapters of this book. So now, if you'll permit me to indulge, I will now start digging into the individual (laughs) things that infuriated me going through my long list of packages and uh, passages and strangeness from this book. This is what we've been waiting for. Maybe not. See how exhausted you get when we get into the 900s. Uh, I'm just, just waking up. All right, so I've got these cut up into categories. The first one... Of course is, you do. <laughs> yeah. The first one is technical cluelessness. All right? Uh, this is something... Oh, uh, I knew I you were going to pick this one. I wanted to do one. that first section to give my overall impression of the book and why I think it's not a good book before I get into this part. Because if people tune into the show now, they're going to be like, oh, well, you're just picking to these technical things that aren't really important. Uh, that's... There's no reason not to like this book. All the reasons I previously stated are the reasons I think this is not a good book. These are, on top of all that, just the little daggers in the side of the nerds reading it. Obviously, these things will not bother uh, lay people reading it, but I think the author has has shirked his responsibility to lay people by not by not educating them and emphasizing the correct things in the life of Steve Jobs. All right, so but this is just picking you and stuff. This is a hypercritical after all. So as I'm reading this book, I'm, you know... This is where I started to pick up on uh, technical inaccuracies and I would just highlight them. Right? And these are more or less in chronological order because I just went through down through my highlights. Great. At one point, he says that uh, Apple improved on Xerox, Xerox Parks technology by adding menus that pull down from a bar atop each window. And now I read that, I'm like, has this person ever used a Macintosh? <laughs> a menu bar on top of each window? There is an operating system that's like that, but, but it's not. <laughs> Apple's operating so, like. I'm not saying is that is that a picky you in detail like you're you're picking nits you don't need that that's not that's not a little thing if anyone has ever used the Macintosh before you know there's one menu bar at the top of the screen there's not one in each window right uh, they're talking about round wrecks the story pulled from folklore.org and from Revolution in the Valley the uh, Valley the book by uh, Andy Hertzfeld it says uh, this is a quote the dialog boxes and windows on the Lisa and Mac and almost every other subsequent computer ended up being rendered with rounded corners. I would like you now to pull up a dialog box on your Lisa Macintosh or any other subsequent computer and tell me if the dialog box has rounded corners. Actually, in Lion, <laughs> they started to round some of them, but in many previous iterations of the Macintosh operating system, in fact, almost all previous iterations of the Mac operating system, dialog boxes did not have rounded corners. I'm looking at one now. I just looked at the open dialog box in this application. The corners of it are not rounded because I'm a snow leopard. The upper right and left corners are rounded, but they weren't rounded in classic Mac OS. Let's just, like, take two seconds to open a dialog box in the computer that you're writing this on, Walter Isaacson, and look at the corners. <laughs> and before making a sweeping statement about Lisa, Mac, and every other subsequent computer, almost every other subsequent computer, I have a Mac emulator that has, like, a Mac 128 emulation. You can pull up a dialog box in that. Not rounded. Lisa, I'm not sure about, but it just, it's sloppy. Uh, at one point, they talk about giving an original Mac to Andy Warhol or letting him use one. And Andy Warhol says, I drew a circle. Uh, <laughs> Warhol exclaimed proudly after using QuickDraw. Technically, yeah, this is an instance where nerds say, technically, you probably did use QuickDraw, Andy Warhol. But, you know, it's not Warhol saying he used QuickDraw. The author is saying that Warhol exclaimed this after using QuickDraw. He was probably using McPaint, not QuickDraw. Not understanding what the difference between QuickDraw is and McPaint. You know? Uh, <laughs> Gates complaining about next hardware. <laughs> He's saying the next hardware is crap. The optical disc has too low latency. Oh, yeah? Is that what he said? He said he was worried that the latency was too low on the optical disc. I have a feeling, and this is the worst. This is what kills me, right? That's in quotes. 
<laughs> this machine is crap, comma, he said. Right, So that part was in quotes. <laughs> Open quotes again. The optical disc has too low latency. <laughs> he did not say that. Bill Gates, did, I mean... <sighs> yeah, it's in that, and that once you see that you're like oh damn do i have to be suspicious of every single direct quote in this book <laughs> like did he not record it on a little portable tape recorder machine and he's just kind of remembering what people said or he wrote down his notes with like a pencil or something when someone was talking no 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 so here's a case where it, it he tends to just say things matter-of-factly without explaining his terms at all but then at some point during next he's like uh Here's, here's uh, Walter Isaacson narrating. What he was saying was that the real release of the machine and its software, comma, known as the 1.0 release, comma, would not be happening in early 1989. First of all, releases of machines are not really termed 1.0, but he took the time to try to explain what a 1.0 release is. Of all the things he's going to explain in this book, it, he, he explains so little, but then every once in a while, he'll feel like, oh, well, I better explain this term as this technical term. But it's not really a technical term. Maybe he was just confused by it or... And he gets it wrong slightly. It's icky. So here, here's a real, here's a real burner. The whole section about Mac OS X. First of all, he has no idea why Mac OS X was significant, and almost talks about it almost almost not at all. And when he does talk about it, he gives the impression that Apple bought Next, but then didn't use its operating system. So here's a quote. Uh, here and he's he's trying to paraphrase what Gates says. Says the purchase of Next, Gates argued, did not really give Apple a new operating system. And here's a direct quote from Gates. Emilio paid a lot for Next, and let's be frank, the Next OS was never really used. Maybe Gates did say that. He might have been referring to Rhapsody, which didn't right. ship, where they were going to say, everyone rewrite your things, use Next Step APIs. All right, and, and Isaacson continues, Isaacson and Irony again. Instead, the purchase ended up bringing Avi Tavanian, who could help the existing Apple operating system evolve so that it eventually incorporated the kernel of the Next technology. That is such a technically muddled sentence <laughs> as to be, you know... The impression that you might get is they evolved the <laughs> Apple operating system rather than using the one they got from Next. When the reality is pretty much the exact opposite. That they used the Next operating system and oh by the way, put in the blue box crap and you know and and added some uh, shim layer. Like, but if if you can't get right the basic fact that Apple bought Next and basically that became the new operating system, you know he he got all because he doesn't understand the technology. He didn't understand why they needed an operating system, why it was important why this move laid the foundation for everything that would come after, including iOS and all this other stuff. He has no idea about that stuff. And just it just goes by in a second after giving some a bunch of half-truths about it, right? Uh, and then it, this other thing burns me. He will make the same point over and over again, sometimes the same wrong point. So much later in the book, he says he... It's like a copy and paste, and he just rephrased it. Some critics, including Bill Gates, noted that Apple ended up not adopting the entire next operating system. Technically, vaguely true, I guess, kind of. <laughs> All right, and then he says, there's some truth to that because Apple decided not to leap into a completely new system but instead, instead evolved the existing one. Again, you can see where he's getting that from. Someone explained to him Rhapsody and why they had to, to go with Mac OS X instead, but he took the wrong lesson from it because he didn't understand the details and he continues not to understand the significance of abandoning classic Mac OS and going with this new operating system and how it's the only thing that gave them any way to move into the future with any of their products. Uh, here's more technical clues on display. Uh, talking about Bill Gates on the big screen at Macworld, I think it was 1997. Uh, Isaacson uh, narrating, you had expected and hoped that an athletic woman would suddenly come running down the aisle and vaporize the screenshot with a well-thrown th hammer. 
The screenshot? <laughs> Bill Gates live on video is a screenshot? Actually, no. <laughs> uh, talking about the new Mac, it says the new Macintosh operating system, comma, capital O, capital S, capital X. Yeah. No spaces. No spaces. <laughs> All right. And then, then he says, which used some of the software that Apple had bought from next three years earlier. It used some of the software, you think? <laughs> Did it use some, maybe? Like he thinks software is like is like flour and sugar, like you know some of the next stuff and some of the I mean, mixed together, and he has no understanding of what's going on. <laughs> Starting in 1999, Apple began to produce application software for the Mac with a focus on people at the intersection of art and technology. These included, and he gives a big list, and one of the ones on the list is iPhoto to compete with Adobe Photoshop. Perhaps not, maybe. Perhaps if you have ever launched iPhoto and Photoshop, you might be able to detect the difference in these two applications. And and like you think, where does that come from? Right? I remember before iPhoto came out, there were rumors of Apple making a Photoshop competitor, and the thing that they were talking about was iPhoto. But once you see the reality of the program, Apple's not creating iPhoto to to compete with Photoshop. What planet are you on? Uh, Apple had been an early partner with ARM, and chips using its architecture were in the original iPhone. This is an example of a 100% true sentence, which nevertheless completely misses what's important about ARM or any of the history, right? Apple was an early partner with ARM, and the chips using that architecture were on the original iPhone. As a matter of fact, Apple more or less co-founded ARM in 1990 and was a huge investor in the company, and the Newton used ARM CPUs, and eventually Apple divested from ARM. That's what you should talk about. It's like, why did Apple think it should invest in ARM? You know, it was the Newton initiative. Why did they think a Newton was important? Or handheld mobile computing in, instead of desktop computing. Like, it was the first run at trying to do what they did with iOS. But then the, uh, Apple eventually divested all its ARM shares and abandoned it. And you can say the same thing about Intel, which also was an investor in, uh, I believe, an investor in ARM and sort of got out of that. I think they had the X-Scale business was their ARM thing. Or anyway, this whole movement of the PC makers trying to make a run at the portable space a lot, a lot of it involving ARM and similar companies, and then deciding, oh no, we we should really get out of that. Intel deciding we're just going to go with, uh, you know, the Atom processors, and continue to evolve x86 and the whole titanium thing. And Apple saying that Newton thing's not working out, and Steve Jobs killed it, and we're not in that portable space, right? And then they came back around. They're like, all right, now we're back. You know, hey, I know we sold all our ARM shares years ago at a pretty big profit. I know we were an investor in ARM and co-founded the company and everything, uh, but we we got rid of that. But now, but now we're back. Like that arc of of the PC maker trying to go mobile and saying, now nah, forget it, and then coming back around. That's the story to talk about here. Instead of one se- one technically correct, but completely non-insightful sentence about Apple and ARM, and you know that whole thing just is not touched on or discussed at all. This, I don't even know if this is technically correct, but at this point in the book, I was so angry that I was willing, <laughs> I was willing to uh, you know, entertain the notion that, that this could be the case. At one point, he writes... Apple computers, plural, right. paid Apple Corps. I'm pretty sure he just got the name of the company wrong. Apple computers? I'm pretty sure that Apple Computer or Apple Inc. was never called Apple Computers. I tried to look it up. I couldn't find any instance of Apple Computers being an official name of the company. If it was, I apologize. There's one place I'm not calling it. But the fact that I'm willing to entertain the idea that the guy writing the official Steve Jobs bio does not know the name of the company that Steve Jobs co-founded. And neither do his editors, apparently. Uh, and here's the place where <laughs> Walter tries to demonstrate his amazing technical knowledge. He's saying that uh, Apple secretly began planning to, uh, 
uh, Steve Jobs secretly began planning to move Apple off of the Motorola IBM PowerPC chip and to adopt instead Intel's. This would not be a simple task. It was akin to writing a new operating system. Is it? Is that what it's like? Is that is it is it very similar to writing a new operating system, moving <laughs> your platform from one CPU to another? I guess he wanted to show off his technical chops. Say, look at me, I know about stuff. This is probably very similar. Oh, not really that similar. It both are difficult tasks. I will give him that. Is that great writing? You found another thing that's difficult? It is akin to pushing a large rock up a hill. Also difficult. <laughs> Of John Rubenstein, he says he eventually went to work for Palm. Did he? Was he like a janitor for them? <laughs> he just went to work for Palm? Maybe, you know, helping out in the technology department or something? He wasn't like their CEO or anything? I don't know. So that's the, that's the technical nitpicking. Now, here's the editorializing. The mm. editorializing was weird because... This is you know, what you were talking to me about a lot over the last week or so. I'm, I'm starting to read the book and I'm like, so how's this, what's this guy going to be like? Is he going to simply tell the events that happened and not sort of insert his own opinion on them? Is he going to sort of, you know, like, what is it going to be his, his editorial voice? Him himself. You know, obviously you have a voice by who you choose to quote, what you choose to emphasize, and these are the jobs of any uh, biographer, right? But there is a question of whether the author himself is going to shove his own opinion in. Uh, and it quickly became clear to me that I didn't want this guy to put his opinion in. Because I thought his opinion was worthless because he knew nothing, right? Mm -hmm. I'd rather have him carefully choose the opinions of others and lay them out against each other, which he did a poor job also. But occasionally he'd throw in these things, right? So here is uh, quoting uh, Steve Jobs talking, talking about Bill Gates. Bill is basically unimaginative, has never invented anything, which is why I think he's more comfortable now in philanthropy than in technology, Jobs said unfairly. Unfairly? <laughs> It, that's it. He's just going to say, I've decided that it's unfair to characterize Bill Gates this way. No supporting evidence. No, it's like my personal opinion. I'm the author. I'm narrating job said, comma, unfairly. <laughs> just lays it out there, moves on. Next sentence. Nothing about it. Right. Uh, this is talking about uh, jobs and Flash and uh, allowing Flash would you know, to be ported across platforms. It meant, you know, the lowest common denominator. You wouldn't make, there wouldn't be applications that would use the unique features of Apple's platform. Right. And so he quotes from Steve Jobs a whole bunch of stuff about this, and then he goes back to Isaacson, suddenly editorializing, talking about what Jobs said. On that, he was right. Losing the ability to differentiate Apple's platforms, allowing them to be commoditized like HP and Dell machines, would have meant death for the company. Suddenly, Isaacson is qualified to declare unequivocally, with no supporting evidence other than just, you know, by fiat, Apple would have been dead if it had allowed Flash on its thing. It would just would have been the it might have been death for the company. You know, not like, oh, I think he made the right decision for these reasons, or it fits with purchase. It would have killed the company. <laughs> I'm Walter Isaacson. <laughs> declare it to be true. <laughs> so it's not like Walter Isaacson doesn't know anything about anything. He does know something about writing, because I think he worked for, was it, Time Magazine for a long time, stuff like that. So here is an example where he talks in what seems like more detail than other topics, probably because he knows more about it. Uh, when there was a Fortune magazine piece published called The Trouble to Steve Jobs, and Steve was cranky about it. And, of course, Isaacson was in that world of magazines and, and knows these people and stuff. So he actually has some insight into this thing. So he seems like he was more excited to write about than the other things. Uh, and uh, this is the last bit of Isaacson talking about it. As the story was being prepared, Jobs invited, summoned, Fortune magazine editor Andy Serwer to Cupertino to pressure him to spike it. 
Now, if you do not work in the media industry, you may not know what spike it means. Do you know what this means? I, I have n- never heard that term. You can guess what it means though from the context, right? But it's obviously a term of art. He's pressuring the author of a magazine article to spike it. Spiking it is, it was, I think it was newspaper a long time ago when they would actually have a literal spike, like a big metal stick or poking up from a, like a wooden base or something. And when you weren't going to publish a story that you had printed out, you would take the, the published story and you'd, you'd whack it down over the spike, which would punch a hole through the middle of the paper and you'd stack up the papers on this big skewer, right? That's called spiking a story. It's a term of art in the publishing industry. He has no problem throwing that out there. He doesn't explain that at all. He uses terminology that he's familiar with <laughs> in his industry that's really not that relevant here uh, with no explanation. He also had an instance of, this is where I was just getting to the bottom of the barrel. And again, I'm being cruel and unfair, but he did write ATM machine in this book. A lot of people think that's okay because people just call it an ATM machine all the time. In fact, in Terranova last week, they said an EMP pulse. So, you know, maybe that just happens. That's not really affecting the book. But that's does, the that bo- does that bother you that when people do things like that? ATM machine and EMP pulse. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, that that's, I admit that's me going a little bit too far, but that's, that's the mindset I'm in. All right. So the next section I have, well, hold is, on before we, before we do the next section, let me, uh, let me, let me do a sponsor. All right. Reinvigorate.net. Simple real time web analytics with heat maps. That's it. That's all you need to know. If you, if you hear nothing else, you've heard enough, but I will tell you a little bit more. They have real time analytics. They help you track who is on your site and learn what they're doing in real time. You don't have to wait an hour. You don't have to wait a day. You see it instantly. But the coolest thing, for me, the coolest thing are these heat maps. They show a heat map overlaid on your website that shows you where visitors are clicking the most on a web page so that you can see if the design that you've created or that you're using is effective. You can change it based on where people are going. You can you can drill down all of the sub pages. It, it is really, really amazing. And uh, this is this is true. This is real. I will share something with you. I got an email this morning, and uh, I'm gonna I'm not gonna <clears throat> excuse me to protect the innocent. I will not identify the person that sent me this email. But this is a real email, and uh, this is the email. Holy crap! That's a helpful product. I signed up for a year just as you finished talking to Gruber about it. As soon as it loaded, I was seeing incoming traffic hitting dead pages. I realized in our last redesign, our coder had missed a few redirects. I have stats, but it either wasn't showing up or wasn't obvious to me. Lifesaver. Who knows how long I would have overlooked this. And uh, he says that they even maintained the 14-day free trial, even though he already paid. So they're not charging him for those two weeks. So there is a 14-day trial. And you can use a promo code 5 by 5 and you'll get 10% off as long as you have an active account. So essentially forever. Uh, so go check these guys out, reinvigorate.net. I'm using them on 5 by 5 Love this site. you got to go sign up. Everybody sign up right now. All right, next section. Shallowness slash laziness. Ooh. This sounds like already a pet peeve of yours. No, this, I think this is more gets to the heart of what I was talking about earlier in the summary thing. Uh, so here is uh, the author, uh, Isaacson talking about a particular thing that Jobs does. Uh, on occasion, this would backfire, such as when Jobs and I've insisted on using a solid piece of brushed aluminum for the edge of the iPhone 4, even when engineers worry that it could compromise the antenna. That is almost the extent of his investigative journalism into Antenna Gate. That one sentence. <laughs> he talks a lot about the press conference, about deciding how to do the message, but the actual facts of the Antenna Gate case, he, that, 
I mean, that's it. Engineers worried that it can compromise the antenna is, is the extent of his investigation. He has apparently determined that engineers worried about this before the iPhone 4 was released. But that's it. The antenna gate, you know, whether you think it was overblown or not or whatever, you would think that the guy with the inside access could get more information than you than could be gleaned by simply watching the press conference. Do you think do you think, though, that there was there were certain things that because and maybe this is going to be your your final point that was going to take place, perhaps at the very end of of this tirade. And so forgive me if I'm jumping ahead in some way, but do you think that Isaacson's lack of understanding about the industry and about what was really going on from the technology perspective uh, is is why he didn't think, of course, I want to explore this issue in more detail. Or, or do you think that for him, going into this kind of thing was an afterthought and he was trying to focus on other things or the things that he could comprehend? I uh, I think he was, it's, it's shallowness and laziness. I think he, this is a topic where he didn't know a lot about it and to learn about it, he would need to research a lot. And he didn't have enough information to know whether this was an important thing or not. And it's not as if he said, well, I shouldn't talk about, I should talk about Steve Jobs himself because this is a bio. I shouldn't talk about the sort of uh, events of the company and business things. He spent so much time talking about, at one point I'm like, is this a Steve Jobs bio or is this just a history of Apple? Right, he spends so much time talking about the company and the the politics of the company and the industry. Jobs is barely even featured, so that's not an excuse. Like, oh, he did he wanted to focus on Jobs, but I think these particular things to get the facts of Antenna Tenegate right to like really investigate and talk to the people involved and just really nail it down is illuminating to the character of Steve Jobs because without the facts, you can't know like. Was Jobs 100% right that this was completely overblown, or was this partially of his own doing? How much warning did he have? Was it, it you have? It lets you understand the context for that press conference. Does this reveal Jobs to be petulant and you know like the the bad Jobs that we've seen in all the other parts of the book, or is this a case where Jobs was really in the right and was wronged? And this would say this would explain why he has that attitude in other situations because he's been so wrong. But without the facts of what Antenagate was really about, we don't know what what jobs did what what does that say about him because we don't have the context to understand his actions right uh let me keep going here because i do i would want to get to these next two sections uh uh, apple licensed the arm architecture and it also put a 150 person microprocessor design firm in palo alto called pa semi that had created a custom system on a chip called the a4 which was based on the arm architecture blah 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 blah. now he, he says that Apple bought PA Semi and they built the A4, both of which I'm willing to accept, although I'm slightly dubious about whether what PA Semi actually did for the A4 because it was made out of parts done elsewhere and Samsung's Hummingbird chip is available for other people to buy, so it doesn't seem like Apple could have designed it. Or I, I He doesn't go into the details, so he provides no information. I'm not sure, but I'm willing to accept that. But I, my impression is they bought PA Semi not to make the A4 because they bought it long before that, but to do something else to make power PC chips for them. And how do the people at PA semi feel about being bought and how did the Intel switch affect them and all that stuff. That's just not gone into in this book or just glossed over. And that's an interesting thing that we, you know, we always say, why did they buy PA semi and how's that worked out? Has it been a good purchase Are the PA semi people? Great. What were they originally hired to do? How many have left? If you're going to talk about that aspect of the company, tell us about that. Right. Uh, no, no detail there. Lots of detail about the intricacies of making the original Macintosh, who was doing what part of the board and which floppy drive was being selected. And you know why there's detail on that? Because he didn't have to research it. He just pulled from Revolution in the Valley and Folklore.org and all the other books that have been out. You know, he didn't have to 
do that hard work. So he, you know, it's like, oh, he didn't want to go into those details because it's not interesting. He went into a tremendous detail about tiny little technical aspects of the Mac because he didn't have to do the research himself because it was just there for him to summarize and copy and paste. Uh, this harsh, is where harsh. Someone emailed him about uh, the App Store policies and not allowing porn and stuff. Uh, as is quoting Steve Jobs from the email. You might care more about porn when you have kids, Jobs replied. It's not about freedom. It's about Apple trying to do the right things for its user. At the end, and this is Isaacson. At the end, he added a zinger. Steve Jobs quoting again. By the way, what have you done that's so great? Did you create anything or just criticize others' works and belittle their motivations? And then he says that some other CEO was uh, admitted to being oppressed. Rare is a CEO who will spar one-on-one with customers and bloggers like this, he wrote. Jobs deserves big credit for breaking through the mold of the typical American executive. I, you know, and, the, and the guy says about uh, Jobs, that he's willing to defend his ideas in public, and uh, the many in the blogosphere agreed, according to Isaacson. All right, so we're all familiar with this exchange. It was a fairly recent memory when he was talking about porn stuff. Right? Uh, he says Jobs was proud as well, and he forwarded this exchange with, with Tate, uh, and some of the kudos on to me, me saying uh, Isaacson. This exchange would be a great example of where you could dig into Steve Jobs' character. Instead, he just says, he, he quotes another CEO who says, boy, look at this guy. Look at this Steve Jobs. Isn't he great? And he says his job sent the stuff on to him. Right? This is what you're praising? This, this, oh, and by the way, what have you done that's so great? Did you ever create anything? That is a textbook ad hominem fallacy. Textbook. Textbook. <laughs> like, a person, and I will read from, like, the, the, the million web pages you can find on the ad hominem fallacy, the, the best known logical fallacy on the internet for a good reason. These steps are basically... Person A makes claim X. Person B makes an attack on person A. Therefore, A's claim is false. This is, this is what he did. So Isaacson just lets that fly. Why wouldn't you talk to Steve Jobs say, you do realize that, you know, ask him, why does he think it was compelling for him to attack the person? What have you done that's so great? That doesn't address the person's point at all. The person's point could be valid or invalid about, you know, whether it's good to keep stuff out of the accident. But that attack doesn't make any sense. Steve Jobs is a smart person. Don't just say, oh, another CEO thought he was feisty. Call him on it so you can investigate his personality and say, does he, does he not realize that that's, a, that that's not, you know, a valid... It's like a two-year-old's argument. Ask him, do you think that's a valid argument? Do you just do that to make yourself feel better? He gets into this a little bit later, but he, he goes over so many instances like this where he's talking to the man. He's sitting there in the room with Steve Jobs talking about this instance and, and never, like, never tries to address Jobs as an adult and talk about what just happened. It just makes him makes him look like a yes man, you know, like, oh yeah, you know, he'll write all the bad things that Steve Jobs did, but he will he will not like if he was in the room with Barbara Walters or Charlie Rose, or, you would expect some good interviewer to to not let that go by. Just use this as an opportunity to I'm not saying like yell at him about it or anything, but like ask him pointed questions and let his answers stand on their own, but but don't let him just push it under the carpet and say, and see bloggers and this other CEO, I know really loved it. Aren't I great? Ugh. Uh, there's one sentence here. The iPod Nano, for example, was prone to getting scratched because I've believed that a clear coding would lessen the purity of his design. Again, another instance of a uh, situation where there was some sort of Apple problem and everyone speculated, was it something they didn't catch in time or was it, did, they, did they insist that it had this coding because it looked better? Apparently he's saying that they insisted they have this coding that it looked better. This would be a perfect case where you could talk to Ive in this case and say, well, how do you feel about that? The idea that 
sometimes you you and jobs push through decisions that end up being bad for the company and what have you learned from that experience nope just one sentence we're not going to talk about it not going to investigate not going to to ask people to reflect on these types of decisions just going to lay it out there say it is an event that happened the one piece of information he's adding is that i have apparently knew there was a problem because of, and and said and didn't want to change it because it would lessen the purity of design how did he feel when they had to change it did he feel that his design was less pure that you know nothing no investigation shallowness and laziness uh, so here, here's one of my favorite good sections of the book. Uh, this is the part where new information is being imparted. Assuming we can trust this new information, because at this point I'm still like dubious that that I will that I agree <laughs> that I believe every one of these quotes is real and that he's accurately reporting stuff. Uh, but if you're looking for uh, say if you're looking for a reason to read this book, here are the things. So I'm just going to tell them to you now anyway, so you wouldn't have to read them. <laughs> this section I call Steve Jobs' Enemy of Success. And I believe I touched on this a long time ago when he retired, when I was talking about the whole thing of like, we don't know what Steve Jobs does because we just, we know that he's sort of in charge of everything, but we know he can't possibly make every decision. So I, I believe in that show, maybe I'm misremembering uh, what I said, but I believe I was saying something to the effect that if you like a decision and like Steve Jobs, you'll think that it was his decision. If you don't like a decision and don't like Steve Jobs, you think he was the one pushing it. And, you know, like it, since we don't know what he actually does, you're likely to declare like, you know, oh, this was a great thing. Steve Jobs must have been the only reason that it happened. Right. Or this is something horrible. And Steve Jobs must be behind this decision. And I was saying that since we don't know what he actually does, we don't know these details inside the company. For all we know, the thing that you hate, Steve Jobs also hated and argued against it. Or maybe the thing that you love and thought was awesome, he was also arguing against and said we shouldn't do it. And someone else, you know, was able to convince him otherwise. Uh, so there are actual examples of that happening in the book. I really hope I'm not misremembering my brilliant predictions, but... Actually, I hope that I am remembering them correctly. But so here, here, are, some, here are some examples. Uh, Steve Jobs was against uh, iPods for Windows users. At, at one, this is from the book. Isaacs is saying, at one point, he declared that Windows users would get to use iPods over my dead body. And the over my dead bodies in quotes. And all of his top executives and lieutenants were constantly trying to convince him, we need to put iPod on Windows, we need to put iPod on Windows. And eventually, he, Jobs said, screw it, I'm sick of listening to you a-holes. Go do whatever the hell you want. <laughs> You don't have to bleep out a-holes, right? I no, tried to I help. Do, didn't, didn't you say have, You've taken care of it. All right. Uh, and then and the, the interesting point on, on this is that later, uh, a similar topic comes up. And this is Steve, a quote from Steve Jobs saying, we put iTunes on Windows in order to sell more iPods. But I don't see an advantage to putting our music app on Android except to make Android users happy. And I don't want to make Android users happy. <laughs> so here's an example where... He didn't want to put... If, does anyone think that if the iPod didn't go to Windows, the iPod would have been the iPod? Because it's not as if Mac market share has rocketed up to 95% since that decision was made, right? And it's not as if the halo effect would have brought it there. It's like, well, we got to keep the iPod on the Mac because it'll, it'll help sell more Macs, right? If the iPod hadn't gone to Windows, Apple probably wouldn't even be the Apple today. And Steve Jobs was so far against that, he said it was going to happen over my dead body. And was even when he uh, you know, gave into it, to his credit, he was you know, the, the constant badgering of every single other high-level executive in the company made him throw his little tantrum and say, whatever, I'm sick of listening to you. Do whatever you want, right? So cranky and tantrumy. That's Steve Jobs' enemy of success. Next example, the iPod Mini. Most people in the, in the tech industry were sort of puzzling over the iPod Mini when it was introduced because at that point, the iPod Classic, the, what we now know as the iPod Classic, but then was just the iPod, right? Thing with the big click wheel, uh, the full-size thing, was $299 and it held 15 gigabytes. And then along comes Apple and introduce 
a $249 device, only $50 cheaper, but it holds four gigabytes. So for $50 more, you could get more than, you know, three times as much storage. And people say, well, who in the world is ever going to buy an iPod mini? You're going to cut my storage down, you know, to a third of what it was, less than a third of what it was before and just save 50 bucks. I'll just pay the extra 50 bucks and get the regular iPod. This iPod mini thing's going nowhere. Do you remember those, those I sure blog do. posts? Sure do. It, you know, Steve Jobs said exactly the same thing. This is a quote from the book. At one point, Jobs decided to kill the iPod mini, not seeing why anyone would want to pay the same for less. You, see, you know, people say, oh, this is the brilliance of Jobs. He knew that, that, uh, that the iPod <laughs> mini would be successful. No, he wanted to kill it. He wanted to kill the product before it was released because like, I don't see why anyone would want to pay that much money for it. You get so much less with this, with this thing, right? Steve Jobs, enemy of success. But as, we, as we know, that the iPod mini went on to become the far, by far the best-selling iPod to date at that point, massively overwhelming sales of the traditional iPod because at $50 and the fact that it came in colors and the fact that it was smaller combined to make this a much more uh, compelling product for consumers. Uh, and, and again, I could say to Jobs' credit, he didn't follow through with that. He was convinced by his other people that they should actually release the iPod, but then it turned out great. But this, this is stabbing in the heart the notion that Steve Jobs uh, knows exactly what's going on and is responsible for Apple's success. Uh, Steve Jobs was against the App Store. There was a lot of speculation about this because originally the iPhone was introduced and said, oh, you can write web apps. It's a great solution. It's a sweet solution for making applications of this thing. We don't want you to write native apps because right. it'll screw things up. Do web apps, right? And then the SDK came out six months, eight months, whatever later. And like, aha, they must have been planning this all along and they didn't have it ready or whatever. So according to this book, as from the book, when the iPhone first came out in early 2007, there were no apps you could buy from outside developers and Jobs initially resisted allowing them. He didn't want outsiders to create applications for the iPhone that could mess it up, infect it with viruses, or pollute its integrity. Right? So, he didn't think the App Store was a good idea. Had to be convinced of that. Launched the phone without it. There were probably people sort of in the same situation with the, the floppy drive and the Mac. Probably people who disagreed with him who were laying the groundwork for it so that when he did change his mind, they weren't starting from zero. Right. But the book does not investigate that. It doesn't give us any details. <laughs> we, have to, we have to make stuff up. Like, probably, the, you know, that would have been a great parallel. You, but again, he stole all that research from the floppy drive from other people. He didn't bother to do any investigation. Well, what was the deal with that? Uh, Scott Forstall, were you already having your people work on an SDK? Did you, how did you convince them that you should have an SDK? Or, you know, nothing. Doesn't investigate that at all. Like, the sentence I read you is basically the extent of the detail in that particular event. That is my jobs any enemy of success section that's so, that's that's that section it sounds like there might be more sections yeah um, how many see. more do you have because we're 72 minutes in i know i know but i want to get it in, into one show all into one show yeah i don't know how much time do you have i have time today so i don't, I don't how well how much longer do you have i want to do it but i want to give it a, i don't want to rush it i don't well, want to make you no, feel I, I'm, make this a two-hour show i have no problem with that if you i can't, I can't make it i can't make it to our show today what is your deadline well, we're we're hitting it. All right. Well, if you want to stop, you just want to you would ju- just want to vilify me and make it my fault. I I don't want to stop, but I wasn't prepared for a two hour show today. Well, we got fifteen more minutes, right? Fifteen for sure. All but right. I don't want you to feel rushed. I would rather make this a tu- a twofer. You know, make it make it a two part show. Come back and do the next show. Do two episodes next week. Do a three episode next and week. Two episodes next week. Yeah. Uh, 
<laughs> I don't want you to be rushed, but it's... I have so much more on this. I'm, I'm not ready for a two-hour show today. I didn't get any notice that it would be a two-hour show. I'd love to do a two-hour yeah, show. Yeah, I know. I thought I could get through this all in one show, but... You, I mean, are, how far are you? Are you halfway? Halfway, pretty much. So I would rather give you, a, you know, another full hour, hour and a half, and then make you not feel rushed, get a special, you know, do a special bonus show. Because I love this. I could listen to this all day. All right, we will stop on Jobs Enemy of Success and continue. Can you give on- some teasers as to what, what will be coming up in the bonus show? Uh, I have a little tiny bit on Jobs the TV Watcher, on things that define Jobs as success, his ethos, emotional jobs, jobs in politics, uh, uh, jobs in the cloud, a bunch about his family, future directions of the company, jobs in Gates, uh, jobs as personality. So that's what I have left. Those are the section headings. This is good stuff. So we will do that next week. So I, that, this also means that I can't listen to all the other shows still on the topic until we get through next week's show. But such is life. Mm-hmm. So that's it, I think, for this week. Got to wrap, wrap it up then. Mm-hmm. I wish we'd do it all. You can wrap it up. I don't know. Now I feel now I feel bad. Shouldn't feel bad. We get you know we don't want to make it too long. It's it's two shows with material. I guess this I is, but the, the problem is this is going to generate so many people saying you need you need you need to give John Syracuse as much time as he wants. We all have schedules. This, this is like is, an hour and a half show. Yeah, you just I know, have to weather that storm, Dan. It's your you can handle I'm it. I'm just not going to read the email for a week. Not too many people complain. They know next week we'll be talking about this unless something really dramatic happens. And <laughs> you know, you, talk about that instead. You know, if, if every single episode of John Syracuse's favorite television show, The Fringe, ended with an absolute conclusion, would you even tune in next week? I say no. This is a little bit of a cliffhanger. Will will they be able to capture the same feeling? Will the mojo still be there? Will Will John still be on a roll? Yeah, of course he will. Listen to I'll, you. I'll still be angry. Of course you will. You'll be probably angrier than ever. I'm doing this as a favor to the listeners. <laughs> All right. So we'll uh, we'll end this one. So here's what you do. You go to twitter.com slash Syracusa, S-I-R-A-C-U-S-A, just like the uh, little town in Italy. And that's what you do. You follow that man. You can also uh, read his stuff on Ars Technica. Who, who, who he is not employed by them, not an employee of that of that place, and shame on them. And you can follow me. Uh, I'm Dan Benjamin on Twitter. You can go to five by five TV slash hypercritical to hear all of the previous forty episodes of this program and many other programs that we've done. You can go to bigweek.co, which is a little Tumblr blog I do where I collect uh, links and stories that we talk about on these shows, but not this one today. We just talked about the book on this one. And uh, we do have some show notes. So you can go to 5by5.tv slash hypercritical slash 41. And all of the links and the sponsors and everything we talked about will be there. Anything else, John? Anything you'd like to add? We'll I be think back. you've got it all. We'll be back next week. Have a good week. You too.